This is Mike Elgin Radio for Monday, November 18th, 2019. A good thing happened last week, which I wrote about for Insider Pro. In the past few years, the number of searches conducted by U.S. Customs agents at the airports and border crossings has been rising. They used to, back, you know, three, four, five years ago, they used to, if they suspected you of something or wanted to find out something quick and easy, they would take your phone, make you unlock it, and then just sort of go through it, look at your social accounts, maybe check some email, and just see if they could find anything that you were up to. Nowadays, what they do uh, oftentimes is they will take the phone or the laptop or the tablet and they will use a special device to download everything on the phone, essentially mirror the entire device, uh, and then later go through all of that stuff forensically. Most people have never encountered this problem, but in fact it's such a fast-growing phenomenon that it's something that should begin to concern us. Just to see how fast it's growing, uh, the um, Department of Homeland Security told me this week that the Customs and Border Protection did 40,913 searches of electronic devices in fiscal year 2019. The year before that, it was 30,000, roughly, so it increased by a lot. And that was 60% more than they did in 2017. So what happened in 2017 is that the uh, ACLU and the EFF sued the federal government basically on behalf of 11 people, 10 of whom were American citizens, who got their gadgets searched when they were returning to the U.S. One of those people was a NASA scientist who was traveling abroad on vacation, and they just basically downloaded all of his content. Uh, some of the information that he had were, um, you know, sort of, top secret stuff so that they copied all that stuff and that that was problematic in its own way so they sued them and they won the lawsuit uh, last week and that's the good thing that happened and I'll talk about why that's a good thing but in the past the border crossing scenario where you're at the border or you're at the airport was considered a kind of Fourth Amendment gray area. Now, if you recall, the Constitution's Fourth Amendment protects citizens from unreasonable searches and seizures. That doesn't mean that your effects can't be searched. It means that it can't be unreasonable. They can't go on fishing expeditions. In terms of your house, yes, the police can search your house, but first they have to go to a judge, present probable cause, et cetera, et cetera, and get a warrant from the judge. Then they go to your house, they show you the warrant, and then you have to let them search the house, or even if, if you don't let them, they're still going to do it. In the case of phones and tablets and laptops at border crossings, they're like, well, we, you know, they're not going to get a warrant. They're just like, well, we're just going to search this. And it's been getting looser and looser. Uh, and so the judge, which is your U.S. District Judge Denise J. Casper, ruled that such searches can't be limitless and they must be reasonable. So this is still a big gray area, and the case isn't over. The government has 60 days to appeal. Um, I think they probably will. Um, but the reason this is good news is that, of course, we all want to be protected by border agents from you know, nefarious evildoers entering the country. Uh, but 
what happens is that whenever the U.S. does something from a policy standpoint, especially when it has anything to do with aviation or security or whatever, this tends to be emulated uh, abroad. So, you know, I travel a lot. You probably travel. You know, you go abroad. You don't want to go to like Turkey or someplace like that and have them say, "Well, you know, we've changed our policy too to sort of match the U.S. We're just going to, you know, download all the content that you have. We'll fish through it later and decide whether people in your contacts need to be visited by our uh, secret police, or maybe they'll decide that we don't like what you posted about Turkey. So next time we're not going to let you in the country. Um, you know, all kinds of bad things can happen if it becomes the standard procedure for uh, any sort of border situation to involve digital searches. The, the, the problem with that is that, you know, we'll get into an age of AI, which is becoming increasingly available, big data processing, and they'll just be able to just find everything. It, they'll, they'll be able to search your email back to the beginning of time, just hunting for anything they can. And it's not a good precedent. It's better to be able to travel uh, and have your stuff remain private. And so uh, that's why I'm glad that this lawsuit was won by the ACLU and EFF. Um, but having said all that, you can't really trust that in terms of, you know, pr um, exposing your data, saying, well, well, they won the case and therefore nobody's going to take my data. No, that's not a, a good approach. There is something that people don't realize, <clears throat> um, which is that the U.S. government, at least, makes an enormous distinction between data that's on your device and data that's in the cloud. Now, you'd think, well, what's the difference? It's just, you know, a, a storage medium here, a storage medium there. It's all password protected. What's the difference? They could get your password and go after your cloud data. That's not how they look at it. So if anybody in the government tries to access any information in the cloud, what you tell them is you cite paragraph 5.1.2 of the CBP Directive on Border Searches, which specifically says that, quote, only the information that is resident upon the device and accessible through the device's operating system or through other software tools or applications, office, officers may not intentionally use the device to access information that is stored remotely, i.e. the cloud. In fact, their policy dictates that they're supposed to ask you to turn off all networking. So turn off your, uh, your, your cellular uh, connection, turn off Wi-Fi, turn off all ability of the phone to access the cloud. And if you don't do it, they're supposed to do it before they do any sort of search. And what this means is that for U.S. Uh, border officials, you can hide things in the cloud and they will never be able to get at it. And this is a pretty solid thing. The other kind of thing that you that may help you prevent them from searching your device is if, you, if something is um, a conversation with your lawyer or whatever, you, if you tell them it's uh, subject to attorney-client privilege, they will honor that. That's the other big thing that they watch out for. And again, this is a liability uh, point on their part. They don't want to be liable for them doing a search on some third party's information, as in the cloud. They don't, they're not certain that that's yours because it's not physically on the device you're carrying. And they don't want to trample on a lawyer's information. And so they'll leave that alone as well. Uh, in any event, uh, th this is a positive step in the right direction. The increasing searches and the increasing ability of 
governments to apply big data crunching and AI to massive amounts of data that they download and copy from digital devices when people move around is a very good thing. And so we'll keep an eye on that and see where we end up next year in five years or whatever. Uh, but for now, it's good that the ACLU and EFF won that case. Let's talk about industrial espionage. I read a lot about enterprise security and security in general. I write a lot about mobile computing. And industrial espionage is something of a fascination for me because I have noticed that people don't realize how widespread it is, how it works, who is normally the perpetrator, who could be the perpetrator, and what the uh, problem is with uh, being a victim of this kind of attack. When people think of industrial espionage, of course, the first thoughts go to China. The Chinese government and the Chinese military are major perpetrators of industrial espionage globally. Essentially, much of the most advanced military hardware, including fighter jets and other things, are based substantially on stolen intellectual property, stolen from the United States, stolen from Germany, France, etc. But that's just the sort of the shock and awe part of industrial espionage. There's a low-level industrial espionage that's super, super common. And so I'd like to talk about it. I wrote about it recently for, uh, for security intelligence. Uh, you can find it at elgin.com if you want to read the article. But basically, one of the things that people think about industrial espionage is that it's a type of hack an electronic digital hack. Lots of industrial espionage is not uh, a computer attack. Dumped, dumpster diving, uh, crashing investor meetings, getting people drunk at a bar or a party. There are lots and lots of ways to steal company secrets that don't involve hacking. Uh, another thing that is... Uh, interesting about industrial espionage is that a lot of it is not foreign governments or foreign companies, but people and companies in your own, not only your own country or your own industry, but oftentimes it's your own company. Uh, lots of uh, employees, when they see data that might be monetarily valuable, they'll just go ahead and steal it and see if they can sell it later. That technically is industrial espionage, and it's something really to uh, worry about for companies that you know, have a lot of disgruntled employees or who, who have intellectual property or trade secrets or other types of information that they don't want to get in the hands of their rivals, of governments, of wh whoever. Um, and related to that is that a lot of industrial espionage is not even illegal. Uh, there is a, a guy named uh, Eamon Javers who wrote a book called Broker, Trader, Lawyer, Spy, The Secret World of Corporate, Corporate Espionage. And he points out that a lot of uh, attacks are, you know, you can't even get arrested for doing them. One type of attack is let's say that you want to find out information, some company secrets, whatever you can get uh, from a company that is your direct rival. So what you do is you set up a job hunt, you advertise for a job opening, you get somebody, you get people, maybe lots of people who 
um, work for the rival company to come interview for a job. They are eager to please because they want a job. And you can sort of socially engineer them to giving up secrets, things like, you know, who else in the company has access to other secrets, that sort of thing. And, you know, you're basically just doing a job interview. This is not illegal. And so you have to watch out not only for the illegal kind, the electronic kind, but even the legal type of industrial espionage. Uh, another myth or misguided uh, piece of information about industrial espionage is that it's always after intellectual property, companies' secrets. Sometimes companies just want uh, stuff like financial information or client or customer data or any sort of information that helps them do their business better, sort of cheating and taking advantage of the information that you have. Um, it, it's kind of, there's a kind of a fine line between uh, what they call industrial intelligence, which is where you learn about your industry, your rivals, the market, et cetera, and industrial espionage. So sometimes there's a crossover. Sometimes corporations will hire somebody to conduct industrial intelligence, which is legal and a noble profession, but those people they hire may dip into industrial espionage a little bit without telling the person that hired them that they're doing that. And so all of these things have to be kept in mind if you work in an industry, if you're a security specialist or IT specialist or even a you know, small business person. You have to be aware of how industrial espionage works, how incredibly common it is, and the fact that you will never know about it when it happens to you, or you're unlikely to know about it, and therefore you can't rely on your gut instinct about whether or not it's a risk, because your gut instinct is ignorant, doesn't know that you've already been hacked, possibly. Uh, so watch out for industrial espionage and, and take the broadest possible view if you're a professional who has been charged by your company to uh, keep your secrets secret. Twitter is a cesspool of hatred and trolling and misogyny and racism. Or is it? Everyone complains about Twitter and other social networks, but nobody does anything about it. And the thing that I like to tell people who complain about Twitter is start blocking like it's a bodily function. Blocking is one of the greatest things in the world. Basically, a social site like Twitter has hundreds of millions of followers and you will never encounter 99.999% of them. Right? You're, you're only going to interact with a tiny fraction of the people on Twitter. And you can nudge exactly who or which fraction of Twitter that you interact with through, as everyone knows, following people. So when you follow somebody, uh, you will see their tweets on your stream. And that's what you see, the people you've followed, for the most part. And if they follow you, you can have conversations, you can send DMs. Uh, and, and so the people who you follow and who follow you tend to be the people you interact with. But people see all kinds of horrible things. They pe see people saying terrible things uh, and then they don't block. So I encourage everyone to anytime anybody 
says anything on Twitter that is, uh, you know, that, that demonstrates uh, a lack of goodwill, where they are trying to get attention for themselves by trolling you into an emotional reaction to something they say, to block. It's no big deal to block. We should block as freely as we follow. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The way I look at it is that your social stream is a cocktail party at your home, at, at your house, right? So to block somebody is simply to not invite them to the party. There's nothing wrong with not inviting people to a party. If you actually have a cocktail party at your house, you're not inviting well over 7 billion people. You don't owe those 7 billion people an apology. You don't owe anyone an invitation to your home for a party. You want to invite the people who you're, whose company you're going to enjoy, who you're going to learn something from, who are going to interact uh, constructively and uh, beneficially with your other guests that you've invited. And that's what a cocktail party is. The whole point is for everybody to have a good time and, and to, be, to have their lives enriched in some way through the company of others and through the consumption of alcohol and, uh, and uh, snacks. And that's what social media should be for. <clears throat> Stop worrying about, about filter bubbles. The conventional wisdom is that you shouldn't block too much because then you won't get the alternative point of view. You can have any point of view you want. You can, you can if you want, follow 100% of the people you follow could be people you disagree with. It's up to you. You can follow anyone. But what I recommend is that you should use as your criteria for following or blocking whether or not they engage constructively and in a way that benefits you and enriches your life in some way. Because there are so many good people on social media. There's so many good people on Twitter. You don't have time for people to waste your time with, with, with trolling and, and with you know, outrageous statements and, and manipulation. You don't have time for bots. You don't have time for uh, Russian disinformation. You don't have time for ignorant people who get their news from, from fake you know, fake news sources, propagandists uh, who have been essentially manipulated into some rabbit hole of, of, uh, 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 of obnoxious uh, political ideas. You don't have time for that. There are all kinds of really great people doing incredible things who can teach you and who can, who can enrich your life with their company and vice versa. And so, again, my, my recommendation to everyone is block as freely as you follow. Use blocking and following as how you end up with a Twitter. There is no Twitter. There's no universal Twitter. There's only the Twitter you make through blocking and through following. That's the only tw Twitter you will have access to. And so make sure that your Twitter is the best possible Twitter by blocking like it's a bodily function. We are in Mexico's second biggest city, Guadalajara, which is the biggest city in Jalisco, Mexico. And we've been here for a couple of days. What do you think of Guadalajara? Four days. Yes. Um, well, I think it has beautiful architecture. Um, it's, it's a lot like Mexico City in some ways, uh, just a lot smaller. Shitloads of people, mainly. A lot of people. We're staying in the historic center, and, and right now we're, we're looking at this breathtaking plaza. 
of the Guadalajara Cathedral, and we were looking at uh, the park right below our hotel room, which is the sixth floor. This, yeah, I mean, this, so the best thing about the city to me is this hotel room because basically <laughs> we normally stay in Airbnbs and, and apartments and things like that. We rarely stay in hotels because they're less interesting. But this hotel room is amazing. Like we're on the corner of the best, it's like the best room in the place. Really? Um, it's, it's the view is just incredible. We, we should post some pictures or a little video or something on the website for those who want to take a look at it. I'm gonna post pictures of my workspace on elga.com. People can check that out. But yeah, it's really a cool hotel. It's it's a, it's a what they call a junior suite and it's um, the corner. It's literally the, the most, the best room in the whole hotel and we lucked out we we happened to book we happened to book the junior suite and they gave us the best room in the whole house the whole hotel um, but I was less than impressed with the check-in process and the hotel service and customer service in general, the food, the you name it. The service is lousy, and you you posted an astigram on on TripAdvisor, and then when you were usually done, but I was so aggravated by that, and I, I I just felt that I was doing I would be doing a disservice to other future customers if I didn't post about it. And while you were off uh, exploring tequila at uh, where was it Jose, Jose Cuervo? No, it's, uh, what's the, where were you? Patron. Patron. And while you're off there, uh, the the hotel's uh, customer service manager, or whatever he was, showed up with some chocolate-covered strawberries to apologize because he saw your trip advisor. <laughs> I didn't try a single one of those strawberries because I'm sure they're not organic. <laughs> anyway, he's trying. Uh, anyways, Guadalajara is uh, just gigantic. One of the things that's a little different about it is that is that everything is so spread out. It's a gigantic city, and you can't really walk very quickly to various things. Like, we're in the very center of the city, but most of the restaurants are, you know, miles away. Well, they're, they're, it's really spread out city. It, it just, it's a huge sprawl, essentially. And the good restaurants are literally spread out over many miles and so it's it's kind of hard to go to any one part of the city and experience like multiple restaurants like what we do we like to do restaurant roulette sometimes right and and it, it would require that we walk four miles to one and then another three miles to the next place and so restaurant roulette by the way is where you go to a restaurant you order one thing like an appetizer and if it's great you order another thing and if it isn't great you go to another you pay your check you leave and you go to another restaurant and order one thing and you keep doing that it's a, it's a way to go to like six restaurants or seven restaurants in one night and and quickly explore the quality of a number of restaurants as in as little time as possible yes but I have to say um, I mean Guadalajara is great and I think it's fine coming here and check it out and appreciate on the ar architecture it's it's really breathtaking architecture but um, it's not an overly friendly city not like New York City which or Mexico City um, I'm sorry that's what I actually meant to say either one I mean both yeah. New York City and Mexico City one of the weird things about them is that everybody's really really nice yeah exactly so in Mexico City people are just unbelievably friendly and warm and welcoming and Generally, that's not what we've found here. Not that you know people are being aggressive or anything like that. It's just 
kind of apathetic. It's 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 very strange. Yes, yeah, a lot of people what, seem totally checked out. Yes, and um, in fact. Shout out to Manuel, our friend in Cuernavaca, by the way, because he, um, I, I posted on Instagram, actually, on, the, on stories, that the, the room um, um, view, and actually posted, you were sleepy, you were taking a nap, and I took a little video of you taking a nap, and then I posted the whole thing and and I said well the room is the most amazing view that you can have in the entire city but the customer service at this hotel is lousy so then he wrote back to me he's like I'm sorry that you've had you know such bad luck with customer service yeah I've lived there for about seven years and I found um, people in Guadalajara to be a really a, a little arrogant I, I you know I mean that's his experience I can't speak for him but that's what he said and um, um, but I, I have found that you, you don't get that, that incredible Mexican hospitality here, generally speaking. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's great to be here. And we've had fun. We've had some uh, good food. And uh, I spent a lot of time at the Starbucks down the street yes. and a lot of time in this uh, really nice hotel room. And uh, we actually discovered a couple of uh, good uh, beers here which is refreshing. Yes. Also, uh, a restaurant that everybody seems to love for some reason and many people claim is the best restaurant in the city is Hueso, uh, meaning bone. And um, there was one dish that was decent. Uh, we, we had the mejillones, which is the mussels. That was more than decent. Sauce. That was amazing. I thought that was super delicious. Yes, it was good. It was good. But I, I think for me, it, it took the, the general experience took away from it because the salad that we bought that was, I, I think it was nearly $18 salad and it was bland and boring and too sweet. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was just not good. And the hummus appetizer was boring and bland. Yes. So that's I why I come to Mexico for the boring and bland food. <laughs> The other thing is the whole place was wallpapered with bones, literally. Yeah, that just a little gimmicky. And a little off-putting. I mean, it's like a crypt. Yeah, well, it doesn't bother me too much. I just think that they were overdoing it, and it's, I don't like the gimmicky, gimmicky part of it. So where are we going tomorrow? So tomorrow we go back to Mexico City, and we're just going to go have some last tacos there, one of our favorite places. And then we're off to California, which I can't wait. Spend Thanksgiving, well, actually celebrate Squishy Face's birthday. Princess Squishy Face is turning three, and so we're gonna celebrate her birthday. And also Thanksgiving, we're gonna go to Santa Barbara. Uh, we sort of rotate the family Thanksgiving around from town to town in California. This year, it's gonna be in Santa Barbara. And, uh, and are you looking forward to my sister's house? We're supplying the wine. Can yeah. you tell us about the wine we're supplying? It's my one of my favorite wines in Italy from Sarah Minigutz. Um It's an orange wine, so it's beautiful color, and the the wine itself lends perfectly for Thanksgiving. It's called Veto. It's an orange wine made with a white Manzoni grape, with tons of time aging in, in uh, French years. oak. Four years in French oak. It's just an unbelievable wine. It's perfect for Thanksgiving. What else? And of course, some Prosecco, some Bubbles, some French wine, and some Donkey and Goat, of course. Donkey and Goat, Berkeley's finest, and, and this, is why, this is why we're so popular. 
that I way? would. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but you don't think it, we're popular? But it helps. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. All right. That was delicious. Oh, that was so amazing. Really, really yummy. So we just spent less than $10 and ate at two different restaurants, not restaurants, but two places. They're taco stands, you could call them. One was a street vendor, full-on street vendor. Yes, that one is called Por Siempre Vegana, Forever Vegan, and is uh, really well-known and popular with the locals. Uh, and everything is vegan, but it's delicious. In some instances, you can't even tell there's no meat in there. And they have all the garnishes that you can put on, on the tacos. So, for instance, we just had the uh, seitan steak, and there's beans that you can put on, opalitos, salsa verde, uh, red salsa, pretty much everything, anything you want, onions, cilantro, they have the works. Everybody knows that tacos are Mexican and the Mexicans eat tacos, but I don't think people realize how many tacos Mexicans eat and how they almost always eat them on the sidewalk, standing there with a plate in one hand and a taco in the other. You see, just driving just drive around Mexico City, you'll see 500 people doing that in various little tiny taco places which are on every everywhere, block. Everywhere, and, and uh, yeah, the, the great thing is that you, you, know, you, you use your hands. There's no utensils. Some of them are very low quality, and so we don't, we don't often go to street places, but this is really high quality stuff and cheap. Really cheap. And, you know, you have to make sure that they're clean, that someone else is handling the money. There's separation of, of duties. Um, I mean, you can tell when they're taking care to make sure that people won't get sick with what they prepare. But it was a, so it was either 80 cents or so or a dollar or so per taco. We got four with no drink at the first place. So we spent less than four bucks. So 60 pesos, which is like three, three, three bucks. And then we went to the other place where you kind of stand at this tiny counter in front of the guy who's like hacking away at the meat and serving the tacos and drinks over the counter. Um, and that was uh, slightly more expensive, but still really cheap. So you just spent yeah. six bucks, five, six, five bucks, six bucks. Yeah, the, the second place is actually uh, basically a full-on taqueria restaurant. Um, you know, there's tables if you want to sit down. There's a server if you want, but you can go to straight to the bar and uh, they'll make whatever taco you want and they'll give you the drink or beer anything you want right there and you just stand and eat that's what we did and by the time you hear this I will have posted a blog post and photos of this of these tacos if you want to take a look at them yeah. and look at the whole scenario it's just so much fun and we're kind of in a hurry because I have a deadline I got to write a column tonight and the whole thing we went to two restaurants in total for both restaurants took us 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. We barely chewed our foods, but it's so much fun. There is something really magical about being able to just walk up to a place and they make your tacos right then and there. You eat them by hand. You stand there with all the locals. It's fantastic. It's such a wonderful um, experience. And by the way, the second place is called El Jarocho. And... Um, uh, those tacos were really cheap also. Basically, you buy, you buy one taco. We got two tacos, one steak and one was vegetarian. That place is unusual. So the first place did a typical thing, which is they put two thin tortillas together and you, and you just basically have two at once. This place, the, 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 the restaurant-esque place, 
they put one taco on the bottom and one on top. Yes. I mean, one. I'm sorry, one, one tortilla, tortilla on the bottom and another tortilla on top. Yes. So what's that all about? I've never seen that before. Um, I think it's to give people the opportunity to make two tacos out of one. So you can you can have two tacos with half the filling each, or you can put it underneath and have the whole thing with two tortillas as they normally do. They're huge. They're huge. So, I mean, you and I split each taco. So you ordered two tacos, but we each had two tacos. Yeah, so in essence, it was four of that. But it was so, so good. So I was saying that the... Um, the first taco that we ordered was what they call rajas, which is really poblano pepper sauteed in a clay pot with a little bit of uh, cream and, and some potatoes. And I, that is just so good. It was really good. Really delicious. Um, I, I, we stopped walking because I, 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 I don't want us to keep walking past our, <laughs> our apartment. So, uh, all right, so we're going to we'll cut it off here. All right. I really appreciated the comment by Richard Williams on Twitter, uh, and I'm sure you did too. I so sweet. Thank you so, so much. You just made my day. Yeah, thank you, Richard. He said, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'd never heard one as heartwarming as the second episode from Amir Elgin and Mike Elgin. I sat on the drive in my car for 15 minutes so I could finish the episode. Such good listening. Thank you. Find them here. And so that is just a fantastic, wonderful comment. And I really, really appreciate That's it. so thoughtful, very kind and generous. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. If you love Mike Elgin Radio, please rate and review it wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you don't love it, never mind. Thanks for listening.